from me spending four with everybody, is if I've equipped you both with the knowledge and the motivation to make a difference bringing truths like this to other people, your children, your grandchildren, folks in other churches that you know, because very few people ever get to hear a presentation on creation. They very seldom get to hear the evidence from biology or geology, and especially the idea that there's a recent creation. That is absolutely ridiculed today. Um, so the resources are really what is going to help you do that. And, and I just want to mention them one more time. Um, there, there's three devotionals that I have co-authored. Um, each one of them has 365 evidences for creation. Two of them have been published over the years, one about 12 years ago, one of them about five years ago. I spent the last um, two years working with the same co-author, um, producing the third one in the series. So between the three of them, there's the best thousand evidences that there's no doubt that we have a creator from every area of science. Now, this is my only copy. Um, this is the first one I've decided to print in full color. And, and I'm going to pass it around. It's absolutely gorgeous as a book. Um, the, this, I, I'm also going to pass around, if you want to go ahead and order copies, a single copy is $12. I sell 10 at a time for $70. So they go down to $7 each for this beautiful 400-page color book. And it's a phenomenal witnessing tool to other people. They just, you can't help but be kind of intrigued by what's on each page. So I'm going to pass, if you want some, either one or more, just let me know your name, street, address, how many copies you want, um, and I'll send you a bill in the books as soon as they arrive. And they're going to be here in about a month. So I'm going to pass that around. And I'll start with these guys. So take your time. Kind of flip through it as I'm talking. It's, it's, it's called, Have You Considered evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, the other two things I want to mention, and I did last, if you just love a really good Christian literature adventure, it's a three-part series, great present for your grandchildren. You know, eight to 15-year-olds, adults love them too. They're kind of like the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia kind of adventure, filled with Christian characters and, and all sorts of neat confirmations of God's sovereignty in the midst of circumstances. Um, and then last, I have a really, really good friend that spent 10 years documenting the life of a Burmese Chinese person, came from China, lived in Bur Burma most of her life, ended up going through World War II, through the Great Depression, through the 50s rebuilding, ended up in miraculously coming back to the U.S., started out Buddhist, became a Christian, an incredible story of adventure and persecution, very, very similar to the James Michener novels, Hawaii, these great historical novels that cover entire generations. Hardcover book, it's one of the books, everything's three for $25. Really, really interesting read. If you know Chinese, or if you work with them at work, or anybody that happened to be from Burma, they would be blessed by a book like this, because it's filled with their culture and the stuff they grew up in, uh, you, know, you know, all the ancestor worship and Buddhism, but they see the, that weaving hand of God and Christianity through it all. Great witnessing tool. And then last are these videotapes. If you do nothing else but get these in somebody's hands or, and ask them to just show them as a class in their church, way better than the lectures I've been giving. Really, really impacts people's thinking. Uh, and the six videos are $25. So, 
enough of the advertising. Let's talk about, you, you said uh, next week's going to be about why does it matter? Why does creation versus how did God create? God could have created a lot of different ways. God could have used huge periods of time. God could have used evolution. But did he? And what's the impact on the Bible with what you believe? That's a great finishing topic, and I'm really glad your pastor's doing that. I'm going to kind of zero in on just a wee little piece of that. Why does the age of creation matter? And talk about that in a lot of different ways tonight. Now, when I go to a college campus, I'll give essentially this exactly same lecture. I don't shy away from it. And I think that's the big problem. Christians just kind of ignore this whole issue. So non-Christians are led to believe, and this is kind of the bottom line we'll keep coming back to, that there have been hundreds of millions of years of death and cancer and disease and extinctions and animals wiping out other animals. And that's reality to them. Well, mankind wasn't around hundreds of millions of years ago. So who made all this death? Who made all this disease? Who made cancer? Who made all these issues and problems? Must have been God if he exists at all. You see how they all right away get a distorted picture of who God is when you blend in that time. But I just start talking to folks in a reasonable way, not trying to preach at them, but helping them to think. Yeah, if evolution is true, if there's been some sort of process that's created the different forms of life and ultimately human beings, then you have to have enormous periods of time. It couldn't possibly happen unless there's been hundreds of millions of years. So you can't consider any other possibility. If you want to believe in evolution, you have to believe in the enormous periods of time. Okay? It's just the way it is. And I think if people think about it, they realize that, that that's, that's true. On the other hand, as I've talked over and over and over again, the if the universe is a box, and if all the life in the universe is like the things that are inside the jewelry box, there are only two possibilities to explain them. Either the box made itself some natural process, some evolutionary thing, or the box has a box maker who exists outside the box. He isn't part of the box, he made the box. That is creation in its simplest terms. Now, this creator could have created the box over enormous periods of time. But do you understand? He didn't have... If, if, if we have a creator who could make the entire universe, we, we just simply don't have a big enough imagination if we can imagine that creator could have instantaneously made the whole universe. Why not? Why are you eliminating that possibility? So even as you approach this issue of how old is creation, you've got two possibilities... The second possibility allows you to at least consider all the data, consider all the evidence, consider that maybe it could be recent creation. The first possibility can't even allow you to consider that. One of them is very closed-minded. One of them allows an open examination of the data. And that's what we're going to do tonight, look at an open examination of the data. And as I said, evolution is cosmic evolution, the stars and chemical evolution, and biological, geological evolution and ultimately death and disease and bloodshed and extinction has always been around. It's all part of it. It all requires enormous amounts of time. Now, 
I've had lots of conversations with people who believe in evolution. I, had just, I was over in Iowa this weekend, and, and I had this long, hour-long discussion with someone who just couldn't get past, in his mind, the impossibility that life could just pop into existence, that death hasn't always been around. But he would admit there's problems with the idea chemicals could come alive. We've never seen it happen. He would admit we see a downward deterioration of creatures, not an upward advancement as we watch life around us. He would admit there's, there's many examples of how geological layers have laid down very, very fast. See, all the things that are promoted to supposedly prove evolution, he knows there's problems with them. But what he, could, he would never, ever give up on was, yeah, but things are millions of years old. They're billions of years old. All the scientists believe it. It's a fact. He couldn't ever give up on that. See, that's what forms the very core of evolutionism. It's not the mechanisms. They'll just say, well, we'll figure it out later. It's not the fossils. They'll say, well, maybe we'll find the right links later. It's not that they can't show life comes together. Well, we'll figure that out later. But they won't give up on the huge age of the earth. That's like the core of the belief system that forms this whole philosophy that the box made itself. So I think we as Christians need to very logically show the people around us why that is not true. And that's what we're going to do in the next 45 minutes. And again, you don't get any hint of these huge periods of time in a, just a clear, straightforward reading of God's word. It, it, it reads like a narrative where one event follows the next event that follows the next event. It doesn't leave time for hundreds of thousands and millions of years. You know, it, it, it clearly talks about uh, you know, there was a creation of very different kinds of animals that death entered in very rapidly after that because death came into creation before Adam and Eve ever had their first child. That's very, very clear. That wouldn't have taken hundreds of years. You know, people, it's going to take a matter of months or years at most. Uh, and then there was a worldwide flood. In the Bible, they tell you how long people lived. It puts it about 1,500 years after creation. People spread out after the catastrophe. The one who made the box, God himself, became human, took the penalty of death upon himself. And you have a time frame. I'm going to walk you through that of all of this. And it puts creation in the ballpark of 6,000 years ago. Uh, it could be a little more, a little less, but it's not 20, 50, 100 million, thousand or a million years ago. It doesn't fit. And there will be a return of Christ. And he is going to set things straight. He came the first time as a savior born in a manger, the most humble of human beings, dying the most humble and tragic of deaths. He will come the next time as the judge and the king of all creation. And he is coming. Now, I want to switch subjects for a second. And it may seem like I'm off topic, but I'm not. How in the world did we move from a nation where from the 1700s right up into the 1950s, teachers could teach morality right out of the Bible. They could teach history right out of the Bible. They could teach geology and biology and, and all of human psychology right out of the Bible. And yet today, should a teacher do that, they are almost guaranteed to be disciplined and, and if they persist, they will be fired. Only takes one complaint. How do we get there? What a shift. It happened in my lifetime. Well, I think the key event didn't happen in the 1950s. 
It happened clear back in 1925 when American educators were watching what was happening in Europe. And, and many, many school districts, many, many states, much of the nation was still very strong in its Christian belief and faith, but they were watching as Europe was walking away from any faith in God and just France and other countries becoming Germany, becoming very antagonistic toward the Bible, very atheistic. And they saw them as a nation accepted the idea of evolution, apes turned into people, that same nation, their belief in the Bible and, and the impact of Christianity decreased in correspondence to the acceptance of evolution. So they started passing laws that said you can't teach evolution in American schools. Now, I want to tell you right now that's the wrong way to go about things because Jesus said let the wheat grow up with the tares. You, as soon as someone sees that you're hiding any other viewpoint from them, they immediately want to know what that viewpoint is and they're going to probably gravitate toward it. What needs to be done in education is to show different views, but show what's wrong with those views. And then either view, any problems, and the truth will ultimately rise to the top. Uh, the truth is powerful. It changes people if it's allowed to be seen. But the laws were passed. The ACLU, which is always from its inception, but an organization out to destroy the influence of Christianity on our culture. They sued, found a, found a substitute teacher willing to say he had taught evolution. Now, it was against the law to teach evolution in, in Tennessee at this time, but he said he did. So the court case came. Now, it was very amicable. There was no riots. There wasn't what we saw after Trump's election where people were screaming and rioting in the streets. It was just came to court in Dalton, Tennessee to see what would happen. Now, the man defending the idea the Bible could be trusted, it was a literal, true view of history, was a man named Clarence Darrow. No, I'm sorry, Williams Jennings Bryan. He ran for the President of the United States two times in, in the uh, 1900s. Didn't win, didn't get the, uh, the, the win the party ticket, but he ran. He was very well known, and he was there to defend Christianity. The man there to defend evolution was an atheist, out of Chicago, worked for the corrupt politicians and ACLU by the name of Clarence Darrow, he was there to prove evolution was a fact. So ultimately, you had a trial between Christianity and atheism. Which one is going to win? Now, this is great drama. Now, there were no televisions, no video games, but radio had really permeated the American culture within the last couple decades. Everybody had a radio. They were glued to the radio as they listened live to this trial between Christianity and atheism to see who's going to win. Now, the trial went on for a week or more. They brought in expert witnesses. They brought in geologists and biologists and anthropologists. Uh, it turned into a real circus. Nothing was really being proven for sure. Um, as it, actually, almost every single example that was promoted as this proves evolution in 1925 has now been debunked. They're all wrong. The Nebraska man was the pig, the tooth of a pig that has been now found in South America. And it was, it was taught as a fact this is the tooth of an ape man, and on and on and on. They promoted a growing embryo, a little baby growing in its mother's tomb, as an example of how we came from fish, and that proves 
evolution happens every time a woman has a baby because it goes through all these stages that look like different kind of animals. Absolutely biologically absurd. Nobody believes that. And it's, it, it can't be true. But this is the kind of stuff that was promoted. Well, finally, at the end of the trial, Clarence Darrow looks at Bryant and he says, tell you what, you take the witness stand and defend the Bible tomorrow. The next day, I'll take the witness stand, I'll defend Darwinism, origin of the species, and then we'll end the trial that way. So Bryant takes the stand. And remember, lawyers, they're good with words, okay? So he just ridicules the Bible up one side and down the other. He says to William Jennings Bryant, now here's the man, the the whole nation's listening. He's defending what God's word has to say. He says, here it says, right here in Genesis, that Adam and Eve were the first people. Is that right? Yep, yep, that, it, that must be right. The Bible says it. And they had th- three sons, Cain, Seth, and Abel, and Cain kills Abel. You're left with two boys. Where did everybody else on this planet come from? Now, the whole nation's listening. The man defending Christianity has no answer. He looks stupid to the world. The Bible says it must be true. All you've got to do is flip ahead to chapter 5. It says Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. Originally, people had no genetic mistakes. Even after the fall, they probably had very few. So close relations could be married, and then they would go on to have children, and they would have children, and they would have children, and that's where everybody came from. It wasn't until 2,500 years after the beginning of creation that God instituted a law at the time of Moses that said close relations, brothers, sisters, cousins can't be married. Before then, it was no issue, and there was no prohibition, because that has to be where we all came from. But he couldn't answer the question. You know, how did the whale swallow Jonah, and he lived for three days? No answer to that question. Then I think we got to the key moment in the key trial. By the way, this is still called the trial of the century. For an entire hundred years, there was no more famous trial. Now, this is right out of the trial transcripts. Here is a, a, here's a 1925 picture. You'll notice Clarence Darrow, he is talking to the audience. He's not talking to the judge or the, any kind of jury. This is a publicity battle. Who is going to win the hearts and the minds of the American public? So that's who he's talking to. He says to the man defending Christianity, do you really think the earth was made in six days? You know there was dripping sarcasm. Answers the man defending the Bible. Well, not six days of 24 hours. Remember, right out of the trial transcript. This should break our hearts. Okay? Asks the atheist, doesn't the Bible say so? Answers the Christian, no, sir. By the way, you hear this from liberal theologians and colleges all the time. The the Hebrew word that means day is Y-O-M, yom. And it's exactly like the English word for day. It can be used in a lot of different ways. See, I could say six days ago, my father rode in a car made in the day of Henry Ford. I use that same word twice. Do you have any difficulty understanding which time it means a normal day and which time it means a long time ago? It's absolutely clear, isn't it? Every time you put a number with it, it means a day. Day one, there was evening, there was morning. Day two, there was evening, there was morning. When you put evening and morning with it, it means a day. 
God goes out of his way to make sure we understand what it means. But he says, nope, Bible doesn't tell us how long it was. Asks the atheist, does the statement, the morning and the evening were the first day, and the morning and the evening were the second day, mean anything to you? See, he knows exactly what the Bible says. He knows exactly what the Bible means. Listen to what this lawyer, this Christian is a lawyer. Listen to what he says. Well, I do not see there is any necessity for construing the words morning and evening as necessarily meaning a 24-hour day. It's exactly what it means. It couldn't mean anything else. In the Ten Commandments, God says, in six days, I made the heavens, the earth, and everything they contain. How much more clear could that be? You have someone representing Christianity totally denying what God's Word actually says. So the whole listing nation asks the atheist, so creation might have been going on for a very long time. Answers the Christian, why it might have continued for millions of years. Now what difference is there to the listening public between you know, an evolutionary teaching that says there's been millions of years of time as one animal has slowly turned into another that eventually turned into people, and a Christian saying, We've had millions of years as one creature went, slowly went extinct and then God popped another animal into existence and millions of years went by and another animal must have popped into existence and millions of years went by and he added more information and he just created animal after animal. There's no proof of any of that. And it sounds silly to the world because it's not what God's word says. So, no further questions, says the atheist. You understand what just happened? He just got what he couldn't have bought for a billion dollars. The man representing the authority on the Bible saying, you don't have to trust what it says. What you have to believe is what the world tells us it means. And that must be what it means. Wow. Think of the implications. Where do you start and where do you stop? God's word isn't a judge over us. We're the judge over God's word, and we can make it mean anything we want it to mean. Isn't that the world we live in today? There's where it started. Now, the next day, Clarence Darrow said, my client pleads guilty. He did teach evolution. He never had to be questioned in the same way about Darwin and all the inconsistencies of his book. Trial ended. He'd won the publicity battle. John Scopes was was fined $1. Everybody went home amicably. But I think people were listening. I think the church was so embarrassed, they said, we'll just talk about spiritual stuff. You know, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Catholics, whatever. We'll concentrate on Jesus Christ, and we'll leave anything dealing with the world and science to the world. Guess what happens when God's people leave out some area of human endeavor? Guess what involves what happens when we're not involved in entertainment, when we're not involved in sports, when we're not involved in government, when we're not involved in the culture around us and education? Satan takes over. Everybody gets totally deceived. God said we are to be part of this world and have an impact on this world and influence this world, not just leave it to the world. So you had the Great Depression right after that. There's a lot of distraction there, people struggling to survive. You had World War II after that. Then you did the rebuilding. But in 1948, the Supreme Court comes along and it says there has to be a total separation of church and state. The government, which is the schools, can't ever mention God. Well, then you can't talk about creation. Even if it's true, you can't bring it up. You can't talk about it. You can't show any evidence for it. 
And by and large, the Christians said, well, ho-hum, if the Bible's wrong about geology, if it's wrong about biology, if it's wrong about history, if it's wrong about where death came from, why would we want the Bible in the schools anyway? And they just didn't make any sort of an uproar or a fuss about it. So in 1961 and 62, the Bible and the prayer are pulled out of schools. And, and everything just becomes totally relative. Everything deteriorates downwards morally. But do you see where it started? It started with the age of the earth issue at a trial in 1925 that totally undermined people's belief in the Bible. This is such an important issue that doesn't even get addressed for the most part all around us. Now, what does the Bible say about the age of the earth? It's really kind of straightforward. By the way, there's nowhere, and I forgot to grab my Bible on the way out, so just imagine I'm holding it here, but I got everything I need here in the slides. There's nowhere where you can look up, and it says, you know, you know, uh, in, in 4002 B.C., creation happened. It, it, there's no date, but it's, it's really pretty clear and pretty easy. And, but there's a couple of clues, first of all. After God had created everything, after he'd done different things on different days, and he created all the planet and the time and the space, the animals, the, the birds, the fish, the, and mankind, and it's all done... He doesn't just say it's a good creation. He says it's a very good creation. After mankind is standing here on planet Earth, it's a very good creation. Now, if there have been millions of years of death, and that's built up as fossils and dead animals and extinct creatures, layer after layer after layer after layer of millions of years of death, Adam and Eve are literally standing on the most enormous graveyard in the universe, filled with dead creatures. Does that sound like a good creation to you? See, there's this huge problem with just blending enormous periods of time with what God's Word actually says. But it doesn't set a date. And by the way, this is the even bigger problem I referred to. It couldn't be more clear. God couldn't have come up with any more clear way of explaining how, how long ago creation happened. Six days, he made everything, including what's in the heavens. And Jesus, by the way, when asked about marriage, said unto them, Have ye not read, he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? How does the Bible start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus said, at the beginning, God made male and female human beings. See, he didn't make them about five billion years after the beginning of creation. Those two statements contradict each other, and they're pretty clearly references to each other. People were made right there at the beginning of creation, within six days. So how do you figure out how old it is? Well, you go to Genesis chapter 5. It says Adam lived 130 years, had his, you know, and in, the, in that midst of that, he had a son, Seth. Seth, at about 130 years, had a son, Enos, Enos had a, his son Canaan, and so on. So you can add the age at the birth of each of these children to the next one, add up all the ages, and you come up with about 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. And historically, we know there's been about 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, and we know there's about 2,000 years from Jesus to us. So if you just read the Bible like you would read any other book you would read, just give it the credit of being a book of history, you would naturally come to the conclusion, what is it trying to tell us? God is trying to tell us 
he made this universe about 6,000 years ago. Now, let me show you why that is such an unbelievable concept today. By the way, for, from, from the time of Abraham to the time of G Moses to the time of Jesus, all the way up into the 1700s, nobody had any problem believing that. It was no big surprise. It was just a normal understanding of a Judeo-Christian worldview and what God was trying to tell us through his revered revelation to mankind, the Jewish scriptures and then the, the Christian Bible. It's only been in the last 200 or so. All of a sudden, it's been unbelievable. Well, I'm going to roll us a little montage of how the people around us are so influenced. And I want you to think of the impact of what you're about to see as I roll these movies uh, and other media. There we go. We wish to pursue the truth no matter where it leads. But to find the truth, we need imagination and skepticism both. We will not be afraid to speculate, but we will be careful to distinguish speculation from fact. Evolution is a fact, not a theory. It really happened. It took us two billion years to do what they did in just a couple of days. Yeah. Those little germs are the embodiment of the American dream. Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? I ask you a question, Ethel. Why does a man have to die? The world goes on for millions of years, and how long is a man's life? This much, a drop, a microscopic fragment. Redesign. Evolution, Morpheus. Evolution. Like the dinosaur. You had your time. The future is our world. Ah, Mrs. Alba. I think your Moses shall have been a fool. Moses? Moses, Moses, Moses. I think you shall have been a fool. Here it stands written by him that the world was created in six days. Now, you know and I know that it took many ages to create world. I think you shall have been a fool to have written so. Your Majesty, the Bible was not written by men of science, but by men of faith. Now, I want to, that was 1956. Do you hear what she's saying? You don't have to believe what the Bible says. You have to believe what men of science say and then fit the Bible into it. The same thing that was being said in, in 1925, except here's an enormous popular movie, The King and I, saying the same thing. It's over and over again. And she has this, oh, you poor ignorant king. You just don't know the truth. The condescending look she gives him. A DNA strand like me is a blueprint for building a living thing. And sometimes animals that went extinct millions of years ago, like dinosaurs, left their blueprints behind for us to find. We just had to know where to look. A hundred million years ago, there were mosquitoes, just like today. Now, I, um, I went through the Midland uh, High Biology book when my son was taking biology, because I was just kind of curious. And I actually flipped through the whole book, just kind of scanning the pages. Essentially, one page out of every ten pages 
talked about millions of years ago this appeared 10 million years ago that appeared 100 million years ago this appeared always one animal turning into another turning into another ape men appearing neanderthals you know these are bacteria 2.5 billion years ago always up as a fact just just present it it's a fact it's a fact it's a fact all these time frames over and over and over again as they're sitting there in classroom hearing about it in all the universe in its complexity. The product of three billion years of evolution, perfect in every way, except one. Like all machines, it wears out. The Overland College tells me this rock is at least 10 million years old. Well, well. Spock, as suspected, the probe's transmissions are the songs sung by whales. It's possible. Whales have been on Earth far earlier than man. Ten million years earlier, and humpbacks were heavily hunted by man. They've been extinct since the 21st century. The people need to see what I've seen. They need to see... This is the way it's been done for billions of years. Thomas began far out in space. There was left over from the creation of the solar system after the planets were formed billions of years ago. Listen, hundreds of millions of years have gone by, okay? You've got erosion, lava flow, sandstorms... Meteor impact. In that much time, the whole surface of the planet would have changed. So it's no wonder we never saw it. Hey, don't knock the dinosaurs. They ruled the Earth for millions of years. They must have been doing something. Have you seen these creatures before? Yeah, in the museum. They were fossilized. These things have been extinct for over 150 million years. Every two or three million years, natural catastrophe devastates all life on Earth. But life goes on. And what little remains is made stronger. Put simply, world destruction is an unpleasant but necessary part of evolution. 65 million years ago, what is left of them is fossilized in the rocks. And it is in the rock that real scientists make real discoveries. These guys, for example, the trilobites, appeared 600 million years ago. They were around for 300 million years. They're all gone. There's none left. But in those old rocks, there are no fossils of people or cattle. We've evolved only recently. Evolution is a fact, not a theory. It really happened. But we will be careful to distinguish speculation from fact. Which they never do. And by the way, you find trilobites down at the bottom of the ocean. They would have been buried really early in the flood. Why would you expect a person to live at the bottom of the ocean and be found with them? It's... There's, easy, there's understandable reasons for all this stuff that gets talked about. But is it any wonder that, that p- the kids that become teachers, that then become the, have kids that become the teachers teach this is reality when they hear it over and over and over again? Comedies, dramas, science fiction films, documentaries, everywhere, it, it, that gets repeated over and over and over again. Now, what can science prove about the age of the earth? Well, it is very like trying to figure out how long has this candle been burning? Now, most of you, when you came in, the candle was lit. How would you figure out how much time has passed since that candle was lit? How would you figure it out? Yes. Well, that's an assumption. Let's assume, because you can't go back in time to know what happened in the past on the earth. 
you weren't here. That's an assumption. It may have been here when I walked in. See, see, it gets tricky. Now, now you could take another candle that's like it. You could light it, okay? And this is how all dating methods work. There's an amount of wax here, okay? That's the amount. Then you could light it, and you could time how fast it takes for the wax to burn up. And maybe you could measure it, or you could weigh the candle and then weigh it later. So the amount divided by the rate at which it's being burned up gives an amount of time that has passed. And that's how all the dating methods work. But how do you know you get the right answer? Okay, I, now you listen. I just said, if you weren't here when I lit it, or if the people who weren't here to see me light it, okay? How do you know? You don't. That's the point. A quick comment. Exactly. Maybe, maybe this candle was lit you know, 50 years ago, and I just found it in my basement, brought it back in here, and just reloaded it two seconds before you walked through the door. You know, you might come to the conclusion, you know, that it has been burning for a few minutes, a few hours. You can't know. Yes. Well, the, the rate could change. Yeah. And that's what I was going to get at. You have to know the starting amount. You have to know the starting conditions. You have to know what was there at the beginning. You have to know the rate has never changed. If you had a breeze in this room, the rate would change. You couldn't know that for sure. Yes. But, okay, all of these are variables. And those are all really, really good comments. Now, one thing I want you guys to do is don't assume that scientists that have been out there and they spent their life working on these things are stupid. They're not stupid. People doing radiometric data are not stupid. People doing radiocarbon dating are not stupid. But they make assumptions and they don't talk about the assumptions. They could factor in the fact the candle tapers. They could factor in the... They, they could find wax that's exactly identical. And they do those sort of things but they don't factor in their assumptions. And I'm going to talk about some of those as we go along. True, the wick pulls the... No, actually, it's the wax that's burning. It it is the wax that's burning because the wick pulls the wax up and then the wax burns. If it was just the wick, it would just be burned and be gone. It actually pulls the wax up and it's the wax that burns. And... True, because you've got to get enough oxygen surrounding the wax so that it stays lit, and that's what the wick does. We, we don't want to get into all that, okay? That's an irrelevant issue, okay? <laughs> they do, they do. And we just named a whole bunch of things that could change, okay? Now, just keep that in mind as we're moving along. Um, there's lots of ways of measuring the age of the Earth, and some of them seem to give an age for this planet, which is very, very old. There's, there's no denying that. When you just take the amount of something, you divide it by the rate at which we see it changing today, you get, and let me give you an example. The North American continent and the European continent are about 2,000 miles apart. And we can accurately measure how fast they are moving. And all the children will see this in their textbooks. And they are literally, they are moving apart. They're on these floating plates that are floating on this magma underneath the earth, melted rock. And about every year they move about a fourth of an inch further apart. So if you divide, how far apart are they? 2,000 miles. How fast are they moving? 
They're moving a fourth of an inch every year, 2,000 miles divided by a fourth of an inch per year. You'll come to the conclusion, wow, they've been moving for, two, for 100 million years. See, I've done a dating method. But how do you know they've always been moving at that rate? How do you know for sure they started out together? There are a lot of good indications that they were. But you don't know. That's the point. But there are these things that seem to indicate an old age. But for everything you come up with, like how fast are the continents moving apart, for every one method you would use, there are 10 methods that come up with a really recent age of the Earth. The students just never get to hear about those. They're left out of the textbooks. They're left out of the thinking. And by the way, scientifically, if you... If, if you, you're back beyond historical times, okay? Nobody was there to see anything and when it happened and document it. Scientifically, you can't prove the age of the earth because you can't control those variables. And you can't know for sure nothing has ever changed. You can only make assumptions. What I'm saying is the majority of the data indicates a recent creation. People just aren't allowed to see it. Now, let me take you through some of that. That's what I'm trying to show. The weight of the evidence is down here with a biblical truth. Now, these, there are literally hundreds of ways of looking at the age of the earth, and everybody has their favorites. How much pressure is in oil wells? How much sediment's on the bottom of the ocean? How fast the moon is receding from the earth? Um, you know, how fast stars are burning up? How fast comets as they come around the sun are burning up? And on and on and on and on. There's just lots and lots of ways. And the majority of them indicate a recent earth. We're going to talk about about five of them and then wrap up. And I'm going to spend more time on radiometric dating because that's one they hear the most about. It proves the earth is billions of years old. You have to understand whether it does or doesn't. This is, I use this because it's really easy to understand. And it's just so straightforward. Um, this is where Niagara Falls was in 1911. Okay? The falls was right there. But all this water roaring over the top of this rim of rock just grinds away at it. And it has created this enormous river valley. Now, if you look at that valley, the falls is being eroded away at between 4 and 5 feet per year. The valley is forming. It is 3,700 3, feet from here to where Lake Ontario is. Now, if you look at any geology book, it'll say this is limestone that was created about 10 million years ago. The geology of this area, as far as we know, has not changed in all that time, according to their own geology books. So they would have to conclude it's taken 10 million years for this valley to form. Well, if you divide 3,700 by 4.5, it turns out it couldn't be any older than about 9,000 years. It couldn't be millions of years old. Just simple, straightforward logic. Well, they'll say, well, maybe the river changed. You can always make up an excuse. It's like saying, well, maybe the candle was in an attic for 50 years, and, and then it just got relit. Um, but just a straightforward looking at the evidence would say it's very old. And by the way, it's not 9,000 years ago that that sediment in that valley started, because after the flood, there would have been way more water, and there would have been much more erosion. And you would have formed a lot of that valley much faster than we see today. So, I, you know, it probably started 45, 4,400 years ago, not 9,000 years ago, but it can't be millions. We talked about this a previous week, so I'm not going to belabor it, but we find soft tissue inside of dinosaur bones, all these blood vessels and blood cells and soft, stretchy ligaments. Impossible for it to be there because we know the rate at which it disappears. So if you start out with soft tissue, 
and you divide by the rate at which it disappears, you know within 10 to 20,000 years there is zero left. But since there is a lot of it left, it's got to be less than 10 to 20,000 years. Those bones were buried during Noah's flood. It all makes perfect sense. But it indicates those bones aren't 60 million years old, which means the rock layers aren't 60 million years old. See, this isn't rocket science. Never been refuted. Now, in lesson number five of the video series, it's all about dinosaurs, and I've got some interviews with some brilliant researchers that have done original work, and they found soft tissue in triceratops horns, and he talks about their latest excuse to try to hang on to why that tissue would be there, and it all falls apart when you start to examine it. Um, genetic deterioration. Um, here's a quote by a geneticist um, clear back in um, 1950. He said, it has long been acknowledged by the geneticists, people who are watching how our DNA code is changing. If the rate of, of deleterious, that means bad mutations, which by the way, all, almost all mutations are bad. They just, they're just, sometimes they're so small you can't see the effect. And it's very, very, very few of them that are so bad you immediately see a problem. But the rate of these really bad mutations, if it ever approaches one mutation per generation, Long-term extinction is guaranteed, okay? That's what he is saying. Well, here's what we now know. Every time a mother has a child, there is one extremely negative mutation to the mitochondria, somewhere between 100 and 300 random substitution of letters, 100 to 300, you know, what are called satellite mutations. There are deletions of information. There are insertions of information. Over a 1,000 permanent mutations. Now, we have 3 billion letters in our DNA, so we don't see an effect immediately. But then in two generations, there's 2,000. In 10 generations, there's 10,000. In 100 generations, there's 100,000. You know, in 1,000 generations, there's a million changes to our DNA code. Is it any wonder we see so many diseases building up and lifetimes dropping down? Extinction of humanity is guaranteed, and not in millions of years, in much, much less time than that. Do you understand? There have been at most, from Adam to us, at most 200 generations. We haven't been around that long. And it may have been as few as about 150 generations. Uh, a lot of them don't get recorded. Why aren't there more people? If you look, the world's population doubles about 100, every 150 years. Now, this is in spite of famines and diseases and wars and black plagues and everything we've seen happen throughout history. One culture wiping out another culture. They've had censuses at the time of Jesus and censuses at the time of the, of the um, Chinese and the Greeks. So we get a pretty good feel for how many people were on this planet at different times of our planet's history. And we keep seeing the population double in the range of every 150 years. Well, if you start out with six fertile people, three sons of Noah, three daughter-in-laws that had children, so, you know, three sets of parents or six people, and 150 years later, there were only 12 people on the planet. Now, you know there would have been more. There would have been way more than that, but this is just really generous. So then 300 years later, there's 24. You would have to double the population 30 times to reach our current 7 billion people. 30 doublings. That's all it takes. 30 times 150 is 4,500 years ago. That's when the Bible says the flood was. 
See, there should be way more people here if we've been around for 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 years, which is what you know, all the textbooks tell us. Now, I'm going to take, take a little longer and talk about radiometric dating. This is what everybody hears about. A scientist finds a rock or a piece of lava or basalt or um, you know, granite, and he'll find potassium or um, uranium or strontium or plutonium or some radioactive unstable element in there. And that means it's flying apart. The, the element comes apart, and we can measure today exactly how fast it comes apart. Now, here's how it works. Suppose this sand timer represents what's happening inside the rock. You had a bunch of sand up in the top of the sand timer, and I turned it over at the beginning of the lecture, and the sand flows into the bottom. That's like, say, uranium. It decays, and it transforms itself and turns into lead. A very specific kind of uranium turns into a very specific kind of lead. So at a given moment of time, it's like I'm stopping the sand timer, and I'm looking at it. And I can see the rock, and I can see how much lead is in the bottom that is exactly the kind of lead I would expect to come from the uranium that I also find in the rock. And I know how fast the transformation is happening, because I can measure it today. So if I get this amount of sand in the bottom, I can measure how fast it's flowing in, I can conclude how long since that transformation started, and that when the rock formed, it must have started. And it's pretty logical. It, it makes a lot of sense. Now, you could say, how do you know all that lead didn't come from somewhere else? Or how could you know that it, that it uh, didn't leach into the rock and, and make up all these excuses? But the folks that are doing this aren't stupid. They'll take a rock, and they'll look at strontium, and they'll look at potassium, and they'll look at uranium, and they'll look at uh, you know, half a dozen or a dozen different unstable chemicals. And they'll look at the, 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 the starting chemical, and they'll look at the daughter, the final chemical, and they'll divide the rates, and they'll all kind of agree. All of the different chemicals will come up and give them the same date. This rock is a billion years old. That's how long it's taken. Now, students are shown that, and it's going to be really, really convincing. I mean, how could they all come up to that same date so accurately? It sounds pretty airtight, except about 10 years ago, there's a group of scientists, physicists and others. They work for the Institute for Creation Research. They're strong Bible-believing Christians. They thought, you know, we need to have a good answer for this because we, we were just kind of waving it away and saying, oh, it doesn't make sense when it sounds very, very logical. So they started studying it, and they spent 10 years studying this in different ways and trying to figure out what is going on. Has that radioactive decay really happened? What is going on? Are the daughter elements, the sand in the bottom, are they from where they started? It, and they, they kind of the conclusion, it must be, and I'll show you why in a moment. But this is the other thing they found out. There is two major kinds of a decay. One's called alpha decay, one called beta decay. I'm not going to get into the technical aspects. But whenever about 50% of these decay processes happen, it immediately kicks out a helium nucleus, an alpha particle, which will grab an electron. They're just floating around everybody where in nature and immediately become a helium molecule. So every time an atom of uranium turns into an atom of lead, it instantaneously creates a molecule of helium in the process. Now, 
the decay is happening inside the rocks, so the helium is being formed inside the rocks. Now, I need to bring out my helium balloon because we're going to talk about helium here for a second. But helium is a really, really small molecule that bounces around, and it actually works its way right through other materials. You see, every single molecule is vibrating constantly. I mean, we may think that this solid wood is solid, but it's actually a molecule has a nucleus of protons and neutrons, and they're all there's different numbers of them that are grabbed tight, held tightly together in the nucleus. The electrons are flying around the nucleus, held there by an attraction of, of, of the um, positive to negative. And if the nucleus is the size of my fist, those electrons are one mile away. I think, and everything in between is just empty space. Here's solid matter, as we understand it. The electrons are a mile away, and everything in between is empty space, and it's all just constantly vibrating. Well, helium could literally work its way right through solid stainless steel at a known rate. Given a certain temperature and a certain thickness, you can look it up in a textbook and predict exactly how many molecules of helium will come out each hour right through stainless steel. You see, when you put helium in a balloon that's rubber, what happens the next day? Balloon's on the ground. What happened? The helium came right through the rubber. What you put aluminum, you know, a very thin layer of aluminum on a balloon, it lasts a lot longer. It floats a while, but after about a month, guess what? This balloon's on the ground. The helium works its way out. So when this radioactive decay happened, it formed helium in these rocks. But with time, that helium's going to come out of the rock. But nobody had ever measured how fast does that helium come out of these crystals in this rock. They just hadn't bothered. So the older the rock, the less helium ought to be in the rock. That makes sense. The older the balloon, the less helium there's going to be in the balloon. Well, they did this. They measured based on the reality. And by the way, you take electron microscope pictures of these little crystals in granite. It's the most common foundation creation rock of planet Earth. God had to build Earth out of something. And a big part of it is granite. It's filled with these crystals. And inside of these crystals you see these little circular spherical discolorations. This is actually like a basketball. That little dot at the center may have represented a million atoms of uranium. And when it decayed, it was so energetic, it discolored the crystal and left all these concentric rings. So the decay did happen. But it would have created a million atoms of helium trapped inside of these crystals. Well, they found granite at different levels, different temperatures, took all the factors into account, divided the amount of helium that was formed that they could figure out because they knew how much uh, uh, uranium had to have been there. Then they looked at how much was left, so they knew how much had permeated out, divided the rate by the amount, and guess what age they came up with? Rate, amount divided by rate gives you an age. Turns out the, the most common rock on Earth by, a, by radioactive decay methods couldn't possibly be older than 6,000 years. Now, that's based on constants of science that have never been known to change. So you have one dating method that says a whole bunch of this uranium has decayed, so it must be a billion years old. Another just as accurate dating method says when that decay happened, it had to have created helium. The helium's still there. 
So those rocks can't be older than 6,000 years. They're both equally accurate methods. What I, they're still studying this, honestly. I think the most logical explanation is when God literally formed this planet and he was stretching out the universe, which God tells us multiple times in Scripture, there was probably some rapid, fast-forward rate nuclear active decay that was happening. It was, the heat was being absorbed in the matrix of the space of being stretched. So the decay happened, but all of this happened about 6,000 years ago, so the helium's still there. Now let me, um, let me make that even more clear, because that's all kind of mathematical and conceptual, involves chemistry and physics. Let me just make it really clear. Suppose I've, I've always wanted to go to Israel, and suppose I fly into Israel and my plane lands in Tel Aviv, and I take my suitcases and I walk into the hotel, and up runs this young gentleman. He comes running up and he says, Oh, illustrious American, I have just found an ancient tomb in the Judean hills, and nobody has been there. We did not even open the door because we wanted to bring it and show it to a very special visitor. And for only $500, you can be the first one to look in the tomb. So I give him $500, and we get in his Jeep, and we ride out into the desert. And by the way, there's only one set of tracks as we're heading toward the tomb. And we get there, and there's all sorts of rubble, and we have to clear the rubble away. And we put our crowbar in this big, huge stone doorway, and we go, and we pull open the doorway. Okay, and, the, and, and we're looking in the tomb, okay, and it's this big cavernous room. And it's filled with all sorts of shields. And there's cobwebs everywhere. And on the floor, the dust is like that thick. And there's no footprints. And everything I see looks like nobody has been here for thousands of years. Until I look up and I see a helium balloon on the ceiling. Then I know somebody has been there. The helium balloon wouldn't be floating for thousands of years, even if it existed. Someone else had to have been there recently. See, it doesn't matter that there's no other evidence. It doesn't matter that there's dust on the floor. It doesn't matter that there was lots of rubble. The fact that the helium is still in the balloon proves it isn't that much time that has passed. Do you understand what God has done? The modern tour guides of today are saying the earth is billions of years old. Everything's billions of years old. Life's been around for hundreds of millions of years. There's all this evidence. There's all this. There's that. But those rock layers contain trillions upon trillions upon trillions of tiny microscopic pockets of helium that can't be there unless that radioactive decay happened very, very recently. And those rocks formed very, very recently. You understand what God is doing? Dinosaur tissue, genetic deterioration, helium in the rocks. He is making it absolutely, abundantly, unquestionably clear the only possibility for our existence is exactly what he has told us in his revealed word. And shame on Christians for ignoring all this. Now, by the way, if you look in the atmosphere, you find helium up there, and there's about 3.5 trillion kilograms. We can measure how fast it's coming out of the rock layers. We have a pretty good survey of all the rocks that are spewing out helium all over the earth, the amount in the atmosphere divided by the rate at which it's being sent up there tells us the atmosphere of the Earth's in the range of 10,000 years old, not millions of years old. There would be way more up there. The Earth's magnetic field is decaying. Just in the last 150 years, 
it is 15% weaker than it was when he started measuring it in the 1800s. The total strength year after year is dropping at a measurable rate. And, and we can follow it now. It's exponential, which means every about 1,200 years it doubles. So 2,400 years it would have been four times as strong. 3,600 years ago it would have been eight times as strong. At the time of the flood it would have been about 16 times as strong. And I can't get into it, but there's reasons to believe there was a reversals going on during the flood, and there would have been an enormous drop in the magnetic field strength, which means before the flood, way less harmful rays would have reached the earth from the sun than are happening today. What happened? We see a very rapid drop off of lifetimes after the flood. All this may factor into that. One last example, and then I want to wrap up with the dominoes. The best creationist explanation that I've seen and, and the kind of a consensus of, and doesn't make it a fact, but of the physicists, geologists, is that the continents moved very, very rapidly during the flood. And, and these continents actually like ride on top of one another. So they're at the Pacific plate out in the Pacific Ocean off of California. There's a plate that's shoving deep down into the ocean, down into these very thousand miles down into the ocean. Well, if these were moving rapidly during the flood, you would have had cold material from the Earth's surface shoving like two, 3,000 miles deep down into the Earth in a matter of months. So an enormous billions and trillions of pounds of cold rock would have been shoved deep down into the Earth as enormous amounts of hot rock were pouring back up and forming new ocean basins. That's the kind of things that were happening during the flood. Well, they recently did this, this really accurate seismic sounding of what, what do we have deep down there in the earth where we have all this melted molten rock. And what they found were huge regions of, of very, very cold rock. Now, cold by cold, I mean about 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The rest of the surrounding rock is like nine and 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And these cold regions are right where these plates plunge deep down into the earth. Now, here's the issue. If this has been happening a quarter of an inch at a time over hundreds of millions of years, everything would have come to a uniform temperature way down deep in the earth. It is literally, I brought this snowball. It's like if I walked outside in the summer, it's 90 degrees and it's sunny, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I found a snowball laying in the grass out in my backyard, what would I conclude? What would be the conclusion? That it sat there since last winter? It had been sitting there since last winter. That someone recently placed it there. It couldn't have been there very long. Finding this cold material on the earth is literally like finding a snowball in the backyard. It had to have been plunged deep down there relatively recently thousands not hundreds of millions of years ago and it's, it's still coming up to temperature so here's the, here's what we've got and i'm going to jump past this we've got all this evidence really 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 strong evidence from all different areas of science for a recent creation fresh tissue and dinosaur bones carbon 14 which i talk about in one of the tapes and i've left out of this lecture for that reason because i didn't want to cover topics twice um, in artifacts Rapid buildup of genetic mistakes, helium in rock layers, rapid decay of the magnetic field, cold material on the earth, and the very rapid nature of fossils in the geological record. You've got all this evidence. On the other hand, 
if you reject what the Bible has to say about a recent creation, it means you can't believe the Bible in a very straightforward, clear way. It doesn't mean what it says like you would read any other book. It means God has been responsible for billions of years of death and disease. Doesn't have anything to do with mankind, if those time frames are right. Because those rock layers are filled with death and disease. And they say mankind had one around. It means Adam was a mythical symbol because we find people in those same rock layers using those same dating methods that, that go back using those dating methods 50, 100,000 years. So where's Adam and Eve fit into all that? He's just some sort of an ape that's sort of turning into a person. You, you know, and there couldn't have been a worldwide flood because that flood would have made those rock layers very rapidly. And it means the Bible's wrong about history and geology and biology. So why would we believe anything else it has to say? Now, this is where I kind of like to wrap up, and this will be my kind of wrap-up, that slide and what I'm about to show you in, in the video that, that we're going to film for the last of this session. Just take God's Word, and you kind of read through it like you would read through a novel. You're going to come to certain conclusions. And the first thing you come to is that he created all these different kind of animals. And he, he said he did it in a matter of days. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. So you would come to the conclusion that creation was recent. That's your first domino. Now the second one you come to, and I'm just going to line them up, is that on day six of creation, God made people, Adam and Eve. Pretty straightforward. It's what the book says. If you just believed, it meant what it said in a pretty straightforward way. The third domino you come to is that we brought death into creation because of our rebellion. That's, these are the mighty, big events of the early parts of the Bible. So what was the end result of that? This evil of mankind, it just spread and spread and spread and spread and spread to the point where if God hadn't intervened, there would be no one left that was going to be serving him. So he brought judgment upon this earth in the form of a worldwide flood. And you understand the implications Rebellion, sin, always brings death. There's no getting around it. The rock layers are filled with death that was caused by our sin and our rebellion. So when we morally transgress, it has a consequence. You know, I've only worked my way through the first three chapters of Genesis, and, you know, and then the flood is in six through on. Now, the whole rest of the Bible is kind of this epic narrative that mankind continually transgresses and he tries to be good and then he transgresses and then he tries to be good and he transgresses and we can never be good enough. We can just never ever be good enough to come back into fellowship with God and make up for our sins. And that's because there are moral absolutes and we just keep breaking them. And the consequence is death. Because there are these moral absolutes. So, the Bible's trustworthy on those moral issues and there's consequences for breaking them. Now, what's the church at large? You know, by church, I don't mean, you know, you, you know the, the seven-day Adventist church. I mean the, the Christian church at large. What do they spend their time doing? Fighting the moral issues by and large. Trying to get people to be better people. Trying to fight abortion. Trying to fight the, you know, the nasty ways we act. Um, trying to convince people to be better people. 
you know, trying to tell people abortion is wrong, homosexuality is wrong, trying to convince them of these things. And we see them getting worse and worse and worse, our culture deteriorating, because there's, we've lost an absolute standard of morality. Now, I think we'll never win that battle. If we, we just keep fighting it down here, people say, well, you know, your Bible says one thing, but I don't believe your Bible. Why should I believe your Bible? Why should it matter? Why do they even know it's true? Well, I think the heart of the issue really starts back with the beginning of the Bible. And this time issue is not irrelevant at all. And if you do nothing but add a whole bunch of time to creation and then just let the consequences follow logically, everything else will totally crumble. And let me just demonstrate. Let's make no change to this narrative of the Bible other than let's just blend a bunch of time into Genesis. We'll just say, yep, those dating methods are accurate. Millions of years have happened. So I'm going to do nothing other than say, creation was recent, I'm going to accept all those old age dating methods in spite of their assumptions, in spite of the contradictions to other data, and I'm going to say creation was not recent, creation of millions of years old. And now I'm just going to stay logical. If creation was not recent, okay, then Adam and Eve weren't real people. They were fantasy. Because I use those same dating methods I dig down into a rock layer, and I find fully functional, big brain, tool-using people in these same rock layers that I've dated at 50,000 years old. Well, where's Adam and Eve fit into that? And I find them in China, and I find them in Africa, and I find them in Europe, and, and I find all these people all over the place. So where do you get back to this whole original idea? And then I find people that look a little bit different than modern human beings. They were really just variations of apes. They weren't humans, and they're dated even older. So Adam and Eve become a myth just by trusting the dating methods and looking at the rock layers. Well, if that's true, these people have been living and dying. They have diseases. They can, some of them are identified with cancer. The rocks are filled with diseases and cancer. So death is nothing special. It's always been around. So death is not a consequence of man's action if those time frames are true because it's always been around. And the rock layers, if they're really old, couldn't have been created by a worldwide flood because that flood would have created them rapidly. So you can't trust the dating methods and believe there's a worldwide flood. So there couldn't have been a worldwide flood. So now that becomes fantasy. Well, that means death isn't the consequence of sin, right? It's always been around. So how can it be the consequence of sin if it's always been around? People have been living and dying for 100,000 years or so. Couldn't have anything to do with our sin. Animals, all of life, it's been dying for millions of years. How could it be a result of our sin? You realize what we've come to? We've come to a point where there's no literal creation. There is no worldwide flood. There is no sin because of death. It's just always been around. Death's always been around. We have a Bible with no tie to the physical world. It's wrong about biology. It's wrong about geology. It's wrong about world history. So why in the world would we think people would trust it when it talks about morality? Why not make up our own morality? See, all I've done is blend a bunch of time to the Bible, and then I've remained logical. The whole the other parts of the Bible, they just start to fall like a set of dominoes. And the whole book eventually doesn't become trusted. 
Now, it doesn't happen instantaneously. It may take one, two, three generations. But eventually, the children look at the beliefs of the parents, and they say, your beliefs aren't logical because all this time must be reality. You can't ignore any part of God's word. or It's just enormous consequences happen. So, just want to wrap up. And you all know this. God's word can be trusted. It does mean what it says. And there are horrendously bad consequences on individuals and cultures if we ignore it. Now, that doesn't mean someone who believes in enormous ages isn't, couldn't be a Christian. But I think they can't be consistent in their approach to God's word. They've got to start picking and choosing what they want to believe. And that is a very slippery slope. So, so thank you so much. That's, that was my wrap-up. Um, questions? Yes. You're the first one that asked. Ask and ye shall receive. Yes, you may. <laughs> yep, there you go. No problem. Hassan, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. All right. First off, I've read about the effect of water on the dating system. That I, water can affect it, the age that they come up it, with. It can. Let me, let, me, let me follow up on that first of all. First of all, water absolutely can carry both the daughter element and the mother element in and out of these, these granite rock areas. It, it totally can. So there's tons of assumptions that go with believing that the water's never had an effect. And the second question is, well, actually, um, the um, polonium halos. Yeah. Do you want to make comment on those? I, yeah, but very briefly, because it's without any illustrations, they're kind of complex for people to grasp. But you saw those little spherical um, discolorations inside of... We, we, we can measure how fast this redirective decay happens, okay? With uranium, it's very slow. Half of it may take, you know, 100,000 years to disappear. There are others that happen within minutes or days, okay? The, so if you find polonium, that's one of these unstable elements, and it is inside of a rock that is formed, it must have been trapped when that rock's formed because there it is. In other times... The polonium is just a one of a chain of steps that happen. Uranium might turn into plutonium that turns into something else. And that step will disappear very, very rapidly. Now, what they have found is that whenever this decay happens, it's always perfectly spherical because statistically the decay alpha rays are going to go in every direction, 360 degrees, like a basketball, not even just like a circle. And yet... In some of these, many of these rock layers, especially with polonium, those circles are squished. They've been squished into oval shapes. Now, the only way you're going to squish a rock is if it has been squished while it's still soft. And if that, that plutonium, plutonium um, could only have lasted and discolored a matter of minutes or days, that means that rock had to have been squished very rapidly at the very beginning when it was being formed. So it's one of those ways of knowing that this, these rocks were, were forming very rapidly and they were being compressed while they are being formed and they didn't just sit there for millions and millions of years. So I, did I explain that well enough? Uh, 
or did I miss something? There you go. There you go. Um, I mean, if you could instantly freeze a bubble on its way up through the water, it would freeze circular. If you have to quick freeze them, that those polonium had to be quickly solidified. Yeah. Um, and you're right. That's a, There's the squished circles, but there's also even the existence of some of them was like an instant cooling of granites. Um, and by the way, Russell Humphreys, Gentry, and others, I, I think they believe during the formation there was... There was some instant formation of granites where maybe it was the stretching of the entire fabric of, of universe that absorbed all this heat that caused things like granite to instantly cool and these decay processes to be captured in a frozen state. So kind of neat stuff to be worked on still. Now you showed Mount you showed Mount St. Helens there, <clears throat> and we those uh, that lava's cooling. And yeah. or has cooled and gotten hard, and when they date it, radioactive yep. dating, it's coming out much, much older than we know that you it know, is. You know, did you hear that? Let me repeat it. Uh, I didn't even get into that, the accuracy of these radiometric dating methods. Same thing at the Grand Canyon. There was a volcanic eruption at the Grand Canyon. happened in the early 1900s. We saw the lava flow down over the side. Uh, as part of this same study, they grabbed lava from Mount St. Helens, they grabbed lava from that Grand Canyon, they sent it to certified radiometric dating labs, came back with dates that said it ranged from 300 million years ago to 1.3 billion years ago. Same piece of rock, depending on which method you used. Um, and we knew it flowed out about 100 years ago, or in the case of Mount St. Helens, 30 years ago. Now, what do they say? I mean, again I, again, I repeat, these people aren't stupid. They're just stuck in a paradigm. It's got to, things have got to be this old. Their ex explanation will be, well, that lava brought material from deep in the earth that really is 1.3 billion years old, and it brought it up, and then it resolidified, and we're just measuring stuff that's been reblended from way down deep in the earth. Well, they don't explain this wide variation of, of their methods within the same rock. That just gets ignored. And it begs the question, well, if we know this stuff flowed 100 years ago and it's dating at a billion years old and it's wrong because, you know, we just decided it's recycled stuff, now when we go out to Africa somewhere and we find a fossil and we date a rock and it says it's a billion years old, how do you know it wasn't also 100 years old? Yeah, or recycled. And, and it's just good. They don't. They don't. So, yeah. So more of a statement than anything else. Um, Go for it. I'm constantly listening to you going over and over and seeing the um, pages being turned where it tells about the different millions and billions of, yeah, you know, right. existence and, and stuff. And you do hear it everywhere. And it's like, to me, constantly repeating that over and over again kind of diminishes that tying. It's like... It's like if you talk about the dollar bill and you make it sound like it's really not anything at all. Right. You know, and, and to me, it's like taking these billions and millions of years and you're like, this is just some whimsical number that you've thrown out in the well, air that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Well, it, it does more than that. It, it, it conditions a person to just accept it. It becomes not 
It's astounding. There's that no number should be astounding to somebody when they hear it, and it just becomes normal because they hear it over and over and over again. It diminishes its hmm. impact. Yeah, like a trillion well, dollar debt. It just means nothing after a while. To me, it just makes it, there's no gravity to it. There's no well, right, right. solidness of that number. It's like, but yeah, it you also, just randomly threw this number in the air. And this was a perfect example. Well, you know, we're a trillion dollars in debt. Oh, gee, we're only two now. Well, it's like an trillion. exaggerated lie. It just, it, but it's 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 a necessary to accept it if you're going to also come up with some explanation other than God made us. You got to have the time. Relation to that, most people understand. They can understand well ten or a hundred. Right. But the bigger the Good number, point. the less it is. You're able to understand the grip. It. Yeah. Good point. So almost by using such enormous numbers, you escape accountability because it becomes un, un, unimaginable. Yeah. Yep. So next week, the biblical impact of it all. <laughs>